I want to just mention one thing before we begin the lesson and, and even before we open in prayer. I want to talk about a, a statement that I use in the outline, and that is an ethic from eternity, okay, or an ethic from above. Now, an ethic is a moral principle. And in the Sermon on the Mount and in his preaching, Jesus gives us ethics from eternity, moral principles that belong to the kingdom of heaven. So we have kingdom ethics that he's calling on us to put into practice in our lives. They have been in existence forever. He is from heaven, from a heavenly kingdom. He cannot speak of any other ethics than those that are kingdom ethics. That is where he is from. His entire life before he came to earth as a human being was formed and found in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. And the ethics that he gives us, the principles he gives us, are heavenly ethics. So when they seem strange to us, it's because they're from heaven from a sinless place. And he is here among sinful men saying, this is how it works in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no murder. Michelle talked about that last week. There's no lying. There's no lustfulness. There's no adultery. That is foreign to heaven. And Jesus is from heaven. So when he speaks, he speaks of what he knows. And so here he is on earth giving us kingdom ethics and inviting us to learn along with all of us who are hearing him what it is like and what it means to live as part of the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the kingdom of God exists in Jesus. He says the kingdom of God is among you when he came to earth. And he says you are the kingdom of God. Those of you who know him and have taken him as your savior and have accepted him by faith are kingdom people. The kingdom is also coming and the fullness of all that Jesus is talking about will be fulfilled one day in him and in and for us. But in the meantime, he says, this is how it is. This is the ethics, the principles that I want you who walk and talk, and claim to be kingdom people, this is what I want you to do. Is it tough? Yes. And we cannot do it without him living in us. For it is God who works within us to will and to do of his good pleasure. The life of Jesus Christ living within us lives out those kingdom principles as we allow him to live in us as we yield to him. So he comes into this sinful place, and if these things he says sound strange and are difficult, they are by their very nature, their kingdom ethics. We're going to talk about a number of them today, four of them to be exact. So before we do that, let's just have a word of prayer. Lord, you've given us impossible things for us to do on our own. And so we know that we have to rely upon you. And that is what you ask us to do. The things that you show us, Lord, are things that we cannot do on our own. 
They couldn't keep the law. And you've come to tell us the fullness of the law. And it still, Lord, causes us to stumble sometimes. We thank you, Jesus, that you've come and you have given us the principles of heaven. We ask today that as we look at them, you'll just impress them upon our hearts and our minds so that we learn how to walk and to talk as kingdom people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, that's a daunting challenge. <laughs> it's a hard lesson to teach, um, especially the first part of it. So we're going to look, first of all, at Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and then we'll be turning from there to Matthew 19, 3 through 9. And in this portion of Scripture, we have Jesus talking again <clears throat> with the people gathered around him on the Sermon on the Mount, his beginning sermon. When we get to the portion in, in Matthew 19, he's tangling with the Pharisees. Nothing strange about that. It happened all the time. But he's talking about divorce. Now that's hard enough to talk about in our day. It's a subject that has plagued mankind and between him and God since the beginning of man. And you'll find as we go through this today that divorce was nothing new. It occurred in the Old Testament. It occurs here. It's occurring today. And do any of us have any answers? Not really. It's still a topic that's hotly debated. Should it? Shouldn't it? Should it be? How can it be? All of these things. And Jesus takes it head on. And he tells us what the kingdom ethic is with regard to divorce and marriage how God wanted it in the kingdom of God, how he wants it in our lives. And if it is not, he also provides a way for us to go to him and ask him to work in our lives so that those things that maybe we've done in the, in the past that are not right or, or um, cause us to stumble, we, we can make right with him. And he forgives us. And in all of these things that we're going to talk about today, we need to realize that the power of God works within us to will and to do of his good pleasure. These are tough things. So, let's look at Matthew 5, 31, 32. And then I'm going to take you right over to Matthew 19. Jesus is speaking here, and he had just spoken on adultery and lust and verse 31 says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Then I want to take you over to Matthew 19. We'll start with um, verse, let me start with verse 3 there. Because he's talking with the disciples, or with the Pharisees, and in this discussion, he gives some answers uh, to the people that are listening. And even to the statement that he made um, back in Matthew 5, um, verses 31 and 32. Starting in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for every and any reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And then the disciples get a little concerned. They say to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now, the first thing we need to know in, in this is that Jesus is for marriage. We'll find out a, a lot of things um, as we go through this. And I want to start with, first of all, the Pharisees' question in 19.3. The question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus, in verse 4, goes behind the question to the very beginning of marriage as the Creator set forth his boundaries in marriage. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any old reason? That's what they're asking him. Jesus goes back to the beginning, and in the beginning, now I want you to think about this. Jesus, in the beginning, was creator. For all things were created by him and for him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. So in the beginning, the words that Jesus is speaking here, he spoke in the beginning to Adam and to Eve. It's the most amazing thing to think about. The word of God abides forever. And here is the eternal Jesus. God manifest here. We have God manifest in the flesh, speaking, repeating, this is what I told you in the beginning. Don't you guys ever get it? And what he told them in the beginning is the same thing he would say to us now. He says, I'm going behind the questions that you're asking me, and I'm telling you the kingdom ethic in the beginning. Before man ever sinned, in the beginning, between Adam and Eve, he said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, because Adam was absolutely stunned when God brought Eve to him, do you remember that? He goes, wow, this woman looks really beautiful, like something I, I, I would always love. And so in the beginning, all was perfect. I, God made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, part of the marriage ceremonies that we repeat today. And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put away. Let not man separate. So the ethic from eternity, 
okay? I want you to understand from the very beginning, the ethic from eternity is what? That marriage is inviolable. In other words, it is unbreakable. The marriage bond in the beginning. That is what God decreed. Let not man put asunder what God has joined together. Okay? So this is the ethic from eternity not violated ever. Tough to hear in these days, isn't it? Tough to hear maybe for many people. But God didn't intend it to be hard. This is how life is in heaven. And Jesus is speaking on earth with kingdom principles. Okay, so from eternity, this is the way of life. In other words, just like there was no murder in heaven, there was no divorce in heaven. There was no lying in heaven. There was no lustfulness in heaven. Perfection. Now, after Jesus says this, in Matthew 19, 7 and 8, he says... Verse 7, they keep asking him, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did that happen? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So, in verses 7 and 8, the Pharisees go, why did Moses command? Now, Moses didn't command it. God gave him something to give to the Israelites who were having a tough time staying married. And what we have here, and I'm going to have you turn back to Deuteronomy 24, because God permitted divorce because of the sinfulness of man. We need to understand that oftentimes, because of sin, a principle or a law is given. Because man sins and man gets out of control, God then gives a law to control some of the damage that's done. And in what we read in Deuteronomy 24 is exactly that. The law was given that we read about here because women were being treated so badly. And divorce was common. It existed long before we get to this chapter in Deuteronomy 24. Men would take wives, and when they didn't like them, they'd send them away. And so they'd take another wife. And there was chaos as far as the principles of marriage were concerned. In, Matthew, in Deuteronomy 24, I want to <clears throat> just read what we have here in verses 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house... She becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, 
Then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after he, she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land <clears throat> that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. <clears throat> you see, because of the chaos among men and women and families, and women being treated <clears throat> and mistreated, and you have to remember, they had no rights. Women were treated very poorly. And so if a man didn't like something about her, and, and um, Deuteronomy says, if, something dis if a man becomes displeasing or the woman becomes displeasing to the man and he finds something indecent about her, that phrase kind of tried to narrow things down. And it had to be something that was indecent morally, maybe indecent physically or mentally, something that allowed him not to want to live with her any longer, unable to live with her. Up until that time, all he had to say was, so long. Moses is saying, now you have to give her a certificate of divorce, and to do that, you have to go before a judge. And you have to give reasons why you want to get rid of your wife. It tried to rein in why divorce was so common. It tried to put a stop to what was going on. So God stepped in and permitted divorce for the protection of the women, of the people, okay? In an imperfect world, God sometimes has to step in and permit that which he would not have permitted in the beginning, would not have been permitted in the heavenly places. And so... By the time we get to this passage in Matthew and the Pharisees' questions, the one um, question at the beginning, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Moses says, no, you've got to now give a reason. You've got to have something real, something other than you didn't like the way she did her hair. You didn't like the way she cooked. When we get to Jesus' day, the Pharisees interpreted that law two different ways. Very loosely for most of them, after one of the, the rabbis said he, that they could be divorced for any and every reason. If you didn't like how she looked, if she grew old, if you got tired her, of her and found someone else, you could write her a certificate of divorce. So what they did was to take the law and change it. We know how that goes. Then there was um, Shammai. He was conservative. He said, no. What Moses means by any some indecency about her has to do with sexual behavior, marital faithfulness. And the word that's used in the Hebrew indicates that, that it should be something to do with marital unfaithfulness. The whole thing was designed for protection of the marriage relationship. But what happens is the Pharisees inter interpret it loosely, just like they did in Moses' day, for any and every reason. And divorce was common. So they test Jesus. Last week, remember, we talked about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And what Jesus does here is hone in on the spirit of the law. 
okay? And I need you to remember when we're doing all this where Jesus comes from, what his principles are as compared to those of mankind. Sinless, holy, looking for the best for people. His design was for the good of mankind. The two shall be one flesh, indestructible. But sin entered. Okay? So now when the the Pharisees go to him again, and they say, did Moses command? No, he didn't command. He just permitted that they give the women a divorce certificate. And the Pharisees had gotten to the point was, as long as she has that divorce certificate, the marriage is over and the man can go his merry way. Okay? So, Jesus says this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Your hearts were sinful. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you, and this is his statement of the kingdom ethic, and he's permitting some divorce here. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another commits adultery. So what he is saying to them is this, basically. He's saying in the beginning, it should not have happened at all. But sin entered. And because of the hardness of mankind's heart, God allowed you to divorce. But I say, and he narrows it this way, it's not for every and any reason. And here's his law. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another, commits adultery. I kind of broke it down for you on your outlines. What he's saying, this is not what God intended in the beginning, but because of the sinfulness of man, divorce is permitted. And then he narrows down the every and any reason that the Pharisees were giving. And if there is marital unfaithfulness or sexual immorality, divorce is permitted. In that case, remarriage is permissible. Now, we need to understand the context of all of this. Again, Jesus is speaking as the king of the kingdom. And even to allow for divorce under narrow provisions is not what God intended in the beginning, but he has done it. And we need to understand the graciousness of God in all of this, in divorce, when it's a difficult thing. I have some questions that I want you to think about, and and, um, we'll see if we can talk about them a little. Um, On page two of your, I think it's on bottom of page one, on your outlines, I want you to think of this, what he just got done saying. How does his teaching contrast with the views that people hold about divorce today? We've got 
We're back to the no-fault divorce, okay? What is the purpose of Jesus' teaching here? Is it to be harsh, restrictive, cruel? What does he want us to do? What he's really talking about is marriage is serious business. And if you're a believer, it's very serious. Now, the one thing we need to remember is that we have a loving and grace-filled God. He's the God of forgiveness. And he longs for the happiness and joy and peace of people. And so Jesus gives this, what we might consider a narrow provision for divorce. But God in his grace looks at man and understands where he's coming from. You need to understand that he gave that provision for the people of Israel a long time ago that they were to get a certificate of divorce for the things that were going on in their lives. And he provides throughout Scripture for how husbands are to treat their wives and how wives are to treat their husbands. And when that doesn't happen, he knows that things sometimes become unbearable. And he has a goal for marriage that Jesus gives us here. And that's how you need to think about it. That the goal for marriage, first of all, was that there never be divorce. But if there is, and there's unfaithfulness in marriage, divorce is permissible. Remarriage is possible. If there's marital unfaithfulness, divorce is permissible. And the party can remarry. Now, Scripture also and pastors who have discussed this for years, gives us other examples of where the marriage bond is broken irreparably. And God in his grace has allowed for provision. And I'm not going to go into any of those things today because we don't have time. But I want you to see that this law that Jesus gives us, this principle, is not designed to be unjust or cruel. It was given in the best of intentions because God's intention for us is that we be happy in our marriages. But what we find here is that we have to figure out how to respond to such strong teaching. Okay, If you think this is just too narrow a provision and you don't like what Jesus says here, how are we to respond to it? Or if, if we've struggled and we're in divorce situations and we're broken by it and we didn't have anything to do with it, how do we respond to this teaching that seems maybe narrow in our world today? The one thing you have to realize is that Jesus is the king of heaven and he is speaking to his kingdom people and he's saying, this is what I want you to rise to. This is the surpassing righteousness that he talked about last week. But if that surpassing righteousness is something that we have stumbled on and we're still not there because we're a sinful people, God provides 
for forgiveness of sin. He provides training in our hearts to teach us how to work with all of these things that have entered our lives. Not any of these things he's talked about are things we should bring with us into our Christian lives. The act of murder. Lying, we're going to talk about that next. Uh, lustful behavior. Calling people stupid, disagreeing with them, and being angry with them unrealistically. All of these are things that are not part of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, in all of this, strive to be like me. The last thing we read in, in this whole portion is, be perfect as I am perfect. And we know we can't be on our own, so Jesus says, trust me in this. Trust me in these tough places in your life where you maybe have gone astray, maybe when someone else has hurt you badly, when you're wounded and you can't move because of the woundedness in your heart, and you can't fix what's broken, Jesus still says, come to me. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 103. I want to just read part of this. What he says here is true in all of our lifetimes and in every sin. I want to start with verse 8, Psalm 103. Because this is what he wants us to know about him. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as, the, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children or has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, and the wind blows over it, and it is gone, and it, its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And in your darkest moments, even if you find that some of these things that we're talking about today don't quite fit for you, the Lord is still there. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He has compassion on us as a father pities his children, and he wants to embrace us. Take us through it. And then lift us up into that surpassing righteousness. So while this topic is difficult for many to talk about, we still need to see that in it resides the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the healing of God. Okay? So let's go on from here. That is one kingdom ethic that we have to look at today. The second one is much easier, easier to talk about. It has to do with oath-taking. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, 
33, verse 33, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you've met to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. This is oath-taking. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, or the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your speech be yes, your yes be yes, and your no be no. Now, truth-telling, right under marriage. You see, we think, oh, there's no marriage in heaven. There's no divorce in heaven. There's no sin in heaven, which means there's no lying in heaven. Anything other, Jesus says, other than a simple yes or a simple no is from the evil one. And he tells the Israelites, or the Jews, the Pharisees, in chapter 8 of John's gospel, he says, you are of your father the devil. For he was a liar from the beginning, and he holds not to the truth. He was a murderer from the beginning, and there is no truth in him. So Jesus says, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't swear by the altar in the temple. Don't swear by the gold upon the altar. And make, try to make your truth worth something, but just simply tell the truth. As important as do not, do not reduce marriage to a question of marriage and divorce, but hold to what God said in the beginning. And Jesus says, don't take oaths, just simply yes and no. Now, this isn't talking about oaths taken in the courtroom. That's different. I'm going to tell the truth in this situation. But he's saying, I swear upon the cross on my church. I swear upon the sacrifice on the altar. And it doesn't change your truthfulness one bit. He says, anything like that is from the devil. You just simply need to stand for truth alone. And again, that comes back to taking from Jesus what he promises to give us. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. As we yield to him, he then takes over that part of us that tends toward not truth-telling. And he says, I stand for truth. Now that's even related to the, to the um, verses that he gave us on marriage. Simply let your yes be yes where you are. Let your no be no. Be as careful in every part of your life as you can to show forth the surpassing righteousness of Jesus in your speech, in your marriage. All right, now the next one, I want to take um, verses 38 down to 42. This has to do with retribution and retaliation in the case of someone doing something wrong to you. Now, what he says here is actually life-changing if we take it seriously. And this would be worth a whole lesson. So would the next one. But we're going to zip, zip, zip through them. In verse 38, he says, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. Abnormal behavior for every one of us. Okay? Jesus calls us to radical behavior. 
You see, in marriage, in truth-telling, here in retribution. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Wow. Be nice to people. Be nice to the people that don't like you and that, and that don't treat you well, that are asking things of you that step on your rights. You see, what he's saying is, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, which would be an insult, turn to him the other one also. Now, this all goes back to the Beatitudes where Jesus talked about um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All of those things fit into this package. Because meekness means that I don't cling to my rights above the rights of anybody else. I yield. Doesn't mean I'm weak. It means that I'm taking the high road and I'm not going to let someone else stir me up to anger so that I act in an ungodly way. Now, these verses, we can just take them out of here and apply them because Jesus applies them for us in 1 Peter 2, I think it's 22 through 24, when they put him on the cross, when they reviled him, he reviled not. He did not turn back and attack those people who were attacking him. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a lamb he opened not his mouth. He allowed them to put him on the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he did what God asked him to do. He did not cling to rights that were his as the king of heaven. So here we have the king of heaven saying, don't cling to your rights, even if you're right. Continue to be right, but turn the other cheek. Don't fight with him. Now what kind of effect would that have on the people in the world around us if we refused to tangle with them every time they wanted to tangle with us for some minor reason? What happens when you walk away from a fight? There's no fight. They don't know what to do. Now, Jesus did this in such a way that he, he was not weak ever. Meekness is not weakness. He held to what he was and who he was as the Son of God all of the time. But he went to the cross and did not revile them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this, these verses that we're reading here cause us to look at the other person who is doing harmful things or saying harmful things about us. To look at him as a person and say, what's his problem? What's going on in his or her life? that's causing that action. How can I minister? What can I do? 
That's what this is calling us to, to ministry, to that hurting person who wants to hurt us first. Now, I'm going to continue on to verse 43 because you see this same pattern echoed in these last verses. In verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. All right, we've heard that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's what the Pharisees taught um, and, and repeated to the, to the Jewish people. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. If you love those who only love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others are doing? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this whole concept of love for our enemies calls for more radical behavior. In Deuteronomy 6.4, if you want to look at your outlines for a minute, we have the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 6.4 is what is called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, later on, or I guess before that, in Leviticus 19.18, and this isn't quoted very often, there's a verse that says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus repeated what I mentioned was the Jesus law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In this is all the law and the prophets summed up. So what Jesus is teaching is contrary to what the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching. They are teaching love your neighbor because their neighbors to the Pharisees were fellow Jews, those who were God's chosen people. Anyone outside of that was their enemy. It might be a Samaritan, it might be a Roman, it might be any other non-Jewish person. They were for themselves. And among the, the scribes and Pharisees, in fact, they really were for themselves. They loved themselves. And Jesus says, look outside that little group. Look to your neighbors. Look to those who are not Jews. Look to the Gentiles. Look to those who don't practice your religion as you practice it. Look to those who you consider to be your enemies. Now, Basically what it is that the Jews knew that they were God's chosen people and anybody else was other. Was there discrimination? Yes. All around them. So all of these things we're learning about are things that we can put into practice in our own day and in our own age, in our own communities. God's saying, all right, 
that person that maybe voted different from you, you're hearing a lot about this on the news these days. The divisions between people who are of polit political parties or just of different moral values become your enemy. And you don't interact. You don't even know how to anymore. And Jesus said, listen, I'm telling you, love them as much as you love yourself. I say to you, love your enemies. And I want to take you, um, if you look at your outline down at about letter C. I took this from the King James. In our NIV Bible says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In the King James, this verse is much broader. It's, it's shrunken with translation. I like the old way, and I think it fits much better. Um, Jesus' teaching in the King James was this. That doesn't mean that they added words. It, it just means that over time, some of that's changed. It's, but he says here, love your enemies, bless those who bless you, do good to the, bless those who bless you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. For what reason? So that you can be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So if you take it from the NIV, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Prayer involves something that just looking at people doesn't involve. Prayer involves that we get to know them, that we get to know what's going on in their lives, that we come to value them as people who need to know the Lord, that they become people that we actually care about. So when you take this verse and, and Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, who don't like you, who despitefully use you, who say bad things about you, pray for them so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, so that you might be like God is toward people. Radical behavior, to truly do more than just tolerate the junk that's going on around us. And to do more than just simply do a passing, Lord, please take care of these people that are my neighbors that are bothering me. Take my neighbors and have them move. <laughs> Lord, help me to be able to be safe from my neighbors. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying interact in prayer. Beseech God for the needs of those people around you. And go back up to the portion above. Those people that have problems so that they're um, striking you on the cheek, insulting you, saying things about you that you don't like, that they're ready to take your money, that they want to sue you for things that you did not really do. And Jesus says, not how it is in the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom ethic. Love your enemies. Love like God loves them. That's what he says here. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. Sons or daughters. He causes his son 
his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And if you love only those who love you, what reward will you get for that? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, only those people you know, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And then he ends with this. Be perfect. Some of you have be holy, even as I am holy. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect, we trip on it. But the standard that Jesus asks us to reach is the holiness of God. Be holy, be perfect, as God himself is perfect. Is it possible? Not in the flesh. But in Jesus Christ, we have been in Christ Jesus already declared righteous, holy, with his own righteousness. Justification makes us declared righteousness in Jesus Christ. Live it out, is what Jesus is saying. Be holy. Give your heart to holiness. Be willing to come under the authority of kingdom principles so that God himself might be seen in your life, in your marriage, in your speech, in your relationships with people who aren't always your friends, and with your neighbors. Allow the holiness of God, which requires real submission on our part, to be your guide. The principles of the kingdom of God need to guide us. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard things, things that we cannot do without you. And we see ourselves, Lord, as those who stumble and don't behave very godly many times. But I pray, O oh Lord, that the power of God would work within our hearts to remind us to live as you live so that we can be children of our Father who is in heaven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.